Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 116 of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm your host. And today, we've got a great guest. His name is Richard Capriola, and he is going to talk about adolescence substance abuse and talk a little bit about his book, The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescence Substance Abuse. Um, I was excited to have Richard on because this is a topic that I've wanted to discuss for a while. Uh, because a lot of times parents are out there seeing uh, their kids struggle with addiction and not know what to do or how to notice it. So I was thankful that uh, Richard had reached out to me and told me about his book, and uh, I was grateful to have him on. I hope you guys enjoy it. And before we do that, don't forget please rate and review us in iTunes or subscribe to the podcast if you're enjoying it or even share with a friend. I really appreciate that as well. And yeah, let's go ahead and start this episode. All right, everybody, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Richard Capriola, and he is going to talk about adolescent substance abuse and addiction, which is a topic I've wanted to have on the podcast for a while. So Richard, thank you for coming on and please introduce yourself. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to to be here to uh, to talk about this issue. I have been in the uh, addictions mental health field for over two decades. I started in Illinois working for a regional mental health crisis center and worked there for a number of years. And I noticed that a lot of the people that were coming to the crisis center not only had a mental health issue, but also a substance abuse issue. So I went back to the university of Illinois and got a master's degree in substance abuse counseling. Continued to work for a number of years and then was offered uh, a job at Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas. Menninger Clinic is a psychiatric hospital and I was hired to be an addictions counselor. So I worked for, for Menninger for around 11 years and 
was involved with addictions treatment for both adolescents and for adults that were diagnosed with uh, both a mental health issue and a substance abuse issue. During my time working with adolescents, I noticed that a lot of parents were surprised at the extent of their child's use of substances. When I would sit down with them and go over their child's history of substance use and the diagnosis, one of the most frequent comments I heard from parents was something like, I had no idea this was going on. Or if they did have an idea, they were surprised at how extensive it was. So after I retired from Menninger about a year or so ago, I decided to write a a handbook, a, a roadmap for parents that would give them the basic information that would help them understand the process of adolescent substance abuse. What are the warning signs to look for? What are the assessments that are important for a good diagnosis and where to turn for help? So I really wanted it to be a roadmap roadmap for parents and for families to become more familiar with substance abuse and to be better equipped to deal with it if they're confronted with the issue uh, down the road. So one of the things that you saw is that a lot of parents, when their kids would come in for help, they didn't realize the extent of how much their child was using or what drugs they were using or That's right. Uh, uh, You know, they they were sent into our hospital because it had gotten to a situation where usually either the alcohol or the drug use had become very problematic or the underlying issue that was driving the alcohol and drug use like depression or anxiety had become intolerable as well. So they may have been aware of some of the substance use going on, but they were really surprised at how extensive it was or for how long it had been going on. Right. So let's talk a little bit about this dynamic, because when we're looking at adult treatment, you know, adults, they can come in on their own, they're responsible for themselves. But when you're working with an adolescent who's, you know, a minor, parents are often very involved in that process as well. And I want to talk a little bit about how that kind of works out and manifests itself and, and presents. There are, I think, two big differences between adult addiction and adolescent addiction. The first big difference is brain development. Uh, Adolescent brains are in the process of developing, whereas once a person gets past age 24 or 25, their brain is pretty well fully developed. But a 14, 15, 16-year-old adolescent, their brain is still in the process of developing. So putting alcohol or drugs into a developing brain runs a much higher risk of, of, of much more serious consequences. So that's one of the big differences differences between adult addiction and adolescent addiction, and that's the brain development. I think the second big difference between the two groups is in the area of consequences. Adults who have become addicted to alcohol or drugs oftentimes have faced catastrophic consequences as a result of their addiction. They may have lost a marriage. They may have lost a family. They may have lost a job. They may have been incarcerated. Adolescents, on the other hand, have faced very few 
significant consequences as a result of their substance use. Their biggest consequence usually is their family, you know, coming down on them, maybe putting some restrictions on them. But their consequences have been nowhere near the type of catastrophic consequences that a lot of that a lot of adults have faced. So those are two big differences between adults and adolescents. How does that change treatment then? Because I think for a lot of adults, when they come in, part of those consequences can be a motivator to, to, to change. You're like, I don't want to live this way anymore. I, you know, I'm, it's destroyed my life. I can see it. Whereas here you have an adolescent who, you know, doesn't have that. So I'm wondering like, how, how does that change that treatment? And how do you then, I guess, help the parents and then help, help the adolescent? Many times it boils down to getting to the underlying issue that that drives the alcohol or the drug use. A a good example is marijuana use. Um, I've treated uh, a lot of young men and women who were smoking a a lot of marijuana. And when I asked them to help me understand why are they using marijuana so much, the number one answer that I would usually get was it helps me with my anxiety. Right. It helps calm my anxiety. So if we can if we can treat that underlying issue to help that child with the anxiety or motivate them to get treatment to help that anxiety, then we stand a much better chance of moving them away from the alcohol or the drug use that they've been using to sort of auto-medicate that underlying issue. So the motivation factor many times is to, number one, identify and then address the underlying issue that is really driving the child to use the alcohol or the marijuana. And that can be a powerful stimulant to, to get them to at least consider going into treatment. Right. Do you find when you start to talk to them in that way that they're more open to share that part of themselves and and share like, well, I'm really struggling with depression or I'm really struggling with sadness or maybe they don't even have words for it? Yeah, no, that's a good point, because once you can move the discussion away from focusing on alcohol and drug abuse, then you've opened the door for them talking about what's really troubling them. What is the real reason why they're using alcohol and drugs? And that opens up the door to exploring, well, is it anxiety? Is it depression? Is it some type of trauma? Because a lot of these kids are using substances to to medicate the underlying issue. So you you try to move the conversation to getting at what really is the core issue. And that's where a lot of assessments will come in. My book talks about the different types of assessments that families should look for. They go beyond just an addictions assessment. That's important, but to get to the underlying issues, if there is an underlying issue, probably requires more along the lines of a psychological type of an assessment. Yeah, definitely. I would, I would totally uh, agree with that. What kind of family dynamics then do you see when you're dealing with an adolescent who has a drug problem or an alcohol problem or, or something? Because it sounds like they, they, you know, they might be able to open up to you, but maybe their family dynamics are different and they can't talk about that in their family. That's what I'm making up, but wondering. Well, 
it, it's an interesting question because there have been studies done with, uh, with adolescents. And one of the questions they asked adolescents is, what is it that keeps you from sharing things like your substance use with your family? What is it you're afraid of? And over 50% of them responded by saying, they are afraid of being judged. They're afraid of being judged by their family. Um, and that's a, that's a motivator for them to sort of shut down. But there's a lot of family dynamics going around. Now, usually when they get to the point of coming into the hospital or coming into treatment, the family's focus is on the kid. Uh, but there's a lot of family dynamics that are going on too. So oftentimes the family needs treatment, not just the child, but the family needs treatment. And that's where a lot of social work can come into play. So you actually become part of a treatment team. You might have a psychiatrist, for example, that is uh, monitoring medications if they're needed. You have a, an addictions counselor that might be working with the child on their addictions issue. And you might have a psychologist that's working on the underlying issues um, like the trauma or like the anxiety. And you might have a social worker who's working on the family dynamics. So it really does become a team effort because there are a lot of issues involved that go beyond just the substance use. Yeah, that's what I, I usually see as well, is that there, there's this whole system that has to be addressed yeah. for everybody to, to heal around these issues. It does. The addiction affects the child but it also has effects on the entire family system as well. And, and parents need help. Parents need help because many times they go through a process of being angry to being guilty to asking, where did I miss the warning signs? How did this get past me? What didn't I notice? And then they begin to have these strong emotional feelings as well, too. And, and they need help getting through this and processing those strong emotions as well. Right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I would imagine that would be so difficult and there would be so many different things that go on in the family dynamics that have to be sorted out. There are. Once you get past the immediate crisis of the child, you know, you know, overdosing or the child having a problem with alcohol or marijuana or or whatever drug it is, then you also have to address the family dynamics that are going on as well, because a child who is addicted to alcohol or drugs or is abusing them, that has ramifications for the entire family as well. There might be siblings involved that are affected by it. Certainly the parents are affected by it. Uh, the entire family system is affected. What do you usually see when um, parents face this issue and what is their immediate reaction? And I guess maybe what are some positive reactions that might be helpful? What are some negative reactions that might not be helpful for maybe for parents out there who are listening to this and want to, to, to help their child? I think a lot of the emotion is um, fear, 
you know, they actually fear that something might happen to their child. A lot of guilt, you know, how did I miss these warning signs? How did it get to this point? What, what did I do wrong is a lot of the emotions that, that parents have. And I try to help them see that it's, it's not a question of, you know, did they do anything right or did they do anything wrong? It's a question of where do we go from here? How do we move forward from here and get the help that your child and your family need? Needs. And sometimes they, they become very angry, you know, very angry. I think even for those parents who suspected that there was a substance abuse issue, I think what becomes really troublesome for them is when they learn about the psychiatric or the psychological underlying issues. When they learn, for example, that their child has severe anxiety or severe depression or, or perhaps is struggling with some type of post-traumatic disorder, uh, some type of trauma. I think many, many times those can be more disturbing for the parent than the alcohol or the drug use because it carries with it that stigma of, of mental health disease. Right. So, so they that... get caught with the struggle of not only are they not only are they struggling to try and understand and comprehend the alcohol and drug use. Now, on top of that, they've got a mental health issue, which uh, might be severe, too. Right. Yeah. I was wondering, too, you know, as you were talking about parents being surprised by this, you know, or, or not realizing their child had this issue and how, how does that get missed? I guess, how does it not get seen? Are we just sometimes so involved in our lives that we're just moving and moving and, you know, uh, we're not stepping back and looking. So I'm kind of wondering about that dynamic too. I think in, in, in some cases, it's a, it's a question of parents just assuming this is normal adolescent behavior. Oh, this is, this is, this is what these teenagers do. You know, they act right. out this way or they behave this way or, or whatever. So a lot of parents, you know, I think misinterpret the signals that they're seeing. They misinterpret the signs that are out there and they tend to write it off as just being some type of developmental issue, some type of adolescent issue that uh, that is going on. And, and that's why I advise parents to pay attention to those warning signs. Don't just assume that they're normal adolescent development. In some cases they may be, but in other cases they may be a signal that there's some Something going on underneath the surface. So I think a lot of times parents get trapped with just thinking, oh, this is just, this is just crazy teenage behavior that's going on. It'll pass. And then later they find out that wasn't quite the case. So really slow down and pay attention and, and ask and talk to get more information. What I recommend recommend to parents is that they pay attention to any changes that they see in their child, in their child's appearance, in their child's behavior, in their child's attitude. Those can all be signposts or signals that maybe something's going on underneath the surface. For example, you may have a child who uh, in the past uh, participated in extracurricular activities, was involved in sports, no longer is interested in that. You may have a child who in the past um, used to 
take great pride in their appearance. They no longer do so. You may have a child who uh, was very open about their friends. You knew their friends. You knew their friends' families. And now they become very secretive about those friends. So those are some examples of changes that can be going on that parents need to be aware of. So I recommend to parents that they pay attention to any changes that they see in their child's attitude, in their behavior, in their appearance. Those can be signals that maybe something's going on and you need to investigate a little bit deeper. And it sounds like this is part of the reason you wrote your book as well. It is. I wrote my book basically to help parents uh, have a roadmap on how to, number one, know a little bit more about this issue and then have some guidance in terms of if I am confronted with this issue either now or in the future, what do I need to do? Right. What motivated you to to put this uh, into a book and onto paper and go through that process because writing a book is a is a big deal takes a lot of energy and what yeah. motivated you to do that I wanted to help pa- families I wanted to help parents I've dealt with so many of them and and seen the heartbreak that comes along with having a child who uh, not only has an underlying uh, mental health issue but also has a substance abuse issue I've seen them struggle with it I've seen them agonize with it I've seen the pain that they have um, and 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 quite honestly not every parent has the resources to be able to send their child to a first class psychiatric hospital like the Menninger Clinic. Um, So they really are at a loss of where do I go? What do I do? What's the next step? Uh, They don't have the financial resources many times to to get the kind of services they need. So I wanted to provide them with a roadmap, at least the basics on if you're confronted with this issue, what is the next step? What should you do? And where can you go for resources? Where can you go for help? So I tried to pack all of that into this book. Yeah. And you all, you also, what I really liked about it, you sent me a copy of the book, is that it also has a workbook that's part of it. I wanted to have the workbook for parents. I wanted to give them a resource. They can read the main book and, 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 and get the information on adolescent substance abuse, the warning signs, the assessments, and all of that. But I wanted them also to have a resource that would help them. So the workbook has exercises in it for parents that will help them, help them process a lot of the emotions that they're going through. And one of the issues in the workbook for parents is... How can I have communication with my child? What can I do to open up that door of communication? And in that, I stress the idea of how can we all, not just parents who are reading the book, but how can we all become better listeners? You know, we're very good at listening to words. We're not so good at listening to the feelings that are behind the words. So in the workbook, I stress the importance of practicing learning skills, listening skills. How can we as parents become better listeners? How can we go beyond just listening to the words and and identify the underlying feelings that our child is having. And there's some exercises that, that, that can help parents do that. And that sets the groundwork, hopefully, for being able to have discussions with your child, not just on alcohol and drugs, but on any issue. Listen to the feelings and reflect them back. Right. And, and that can be challenging as, as a parent, you know, especially when you're in your own uh, intensity or 
anger or fear or whatever's going on in your life to really slow down and 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 be there. I mean, that's a challenging at times. It is very challenging. And there's other areas in the workbook that help parents process those emotions where they can identify, actually write down the intense emotions and feelings that they're having and rate them. So a large part of this is helping parents to work through these intolerable, strong emotions that they're feeling and get some help for themselves as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's uh, like we said earlier in the beginning, that this is a whole system process that it's it, it takes everybody to be a part of it to help somebody who's struggling with this. It does, uh, because it's not just the child that's affected. It's 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 the entire family system that is affected and in many times needs help as well. So if parents are out there and they're going through this, what, what do you think there are some things that they could do to help lessen the possibility that their child will turn to drugs or alcohol to, to regulate? I, I once had somebody ask me, well, you know, my child's not a teenager yet. You know, what, what can I do now to sort of lay the groundwork to lessen the likelihood that they will get into alcohol and drugs? And as I thought about that, the, the response was um, start to begin to develop that relationship, that, that foundation of trust and communication so that over time you build up that communication and that trust with the child so that if they are having a problem or if they are confronting something that they have questions about, they can turn to you for advice. Um, maybe it's as simple as, you know, peer pressure that they're dealing with, peer pressure with, you know, maybe smoking marijuana. Maybe it's the anxiety that they're struggling with in school. You want to lay that foundation and down as early as you can so that your child is comfortable coming and talking to you about those issues. You had said earlier about uh, judgment, you know, that a, a lot of kids, what they say to you uh, later is, I don't want to be judged. Right. So it sounds like in that listening, creating that environment where they're going to feel they can come to you and, and not be either shamed or judged or ridiculed or talk down to or I think that's a big part of it uh, from what kids are telling us that is a fear that they have so the more that you can help your child um, you know feel that they're not going to be judged that you're just interested in hearing their point of view the more likelihood that that they're going to open up to you and talk about some of these issues that might be troubling them right and open that door for that possibility of yes. them reaching out earlier right right so if there's some parents out there who uh, are listening to this podcast and wondering about this issue and struggling with this issue, what would you want to tell them? What would you want to say? What would be the one thing that you really want them to know? I would say, number one, get a copy of the book. Um, because that's going to help you to understand what's going on with your child. It's going to help you understand what the next steps might be in terms of getting some tests or getting some assessments might be. It's going to tell you what the range of treatment options are, everything from outpatient counseling to intensive outpatient to residential. At least you'll know what those options are. And then after you've gotten a little bit of, of, of knowledge or education about that, then I would 
would say um, start with if you if you believe that there's a, a problem going on, you need to get an assessment done. Um, if you don't know who to turn to, the book recommends starting with your healthcare provider, maybe your family physician, maybe your school counselor, um, to get some uh, referrals on who can do these assessments for you, because everything starts with getting a good comprehensive assessment done. To really understand and see the whole picture. Yes, get a get a get at least an overview of the entire picture. The book provides that, and it gives you a roadmap on where to go, and then turn to other professionals that can help guide you in terms of where can I go to get these assessments done. Where can I go to get some help? Right, which is definitely challenging uh, for parents and and getting the resources they need to be able to help their child. It is because they're they're involved in this almost crisis type of mode. It's gotten to the point where parents believe, okay, I've got to do something. This has gone on long enough, but where do I go? Who do I talk to? What are the next steps? And they almost feel like they're isolated and alone. Um, so I think part of it begins with just getting some education and a better understanding of what's going on with the substance abuse in terms of how it's affecting your child. Uh, you know, a big point of my book is that you have to look beyond just the alcohol and drug use. There might be an underlying issue that needs to be treated as well. And hopefully parents, when they read this book, will begin to see that, yes, there could be something else going on besides the alcohol and drugs. Now, for some kids, it will be just the alcohol and the drugs. But for other kids, it might be anxiety or depression or trauma or something else going on that needs to be treated as well. And that also also offers a lot of hope. I mean, I, I think, you know, we're going to hear like, oh, my kid's struggling with anxiety or depression, but there's treatment for that. There's help for that. You can get support for that. And, you know, they're also young, which enables them to, you know, get these skills early in their life to help them thrive. That's, that's an excellent point because... The adolescent brain, even though it is developing, our brains have a remarkable capacity to heal themselves. So once we stop introducing alcohol or drugs into the adolescent brain, you can begin to see that there is improvement that, that, that begins to take place. And you're absolutely right. Adolescents, adults, we can all learn better coping skills. And a large part of treatment involves not only addressing the alcohol and the drug use, but teaching kids these coping skills, teaching them how to have the tools in their tool chest, so to speak, so that when they're having anxiety, they learn some coping skills that will help them with anxiety as opposed to, say, turning to marijuana. They may learn, for example, some deep breathing exercises. They may learn some other exercises that they can learn in treatment and counseling that helps them address the underlying issues without having to medicate them with some type of illicit substance. Right. Yeah. And they get those skills and then they can take those skills into their life Mm -hmm. and and thrive. That's right. It benefits them not just as adolescents, but they can learn lifelong skills that will help them down the road as well. And definitely, I can totally under uh, relate to that because I went to rehab when I was 17. And um, a lot of those skills, uh, I was lucky enough to, to be able to get, have that intervention at that age. A lot of those skills went with me into, into my adult life that I gained there and gained the time for 
I think, for my brain to to kind of catch up a little bit if I look back at that. It probably is very true. Your brain, uh, you know, you put you you put your brain into a position where it can start to heal, and as it's healing, you learn these skills, like you say, that will translate into lifelong learning. So it's not just the alcohol and the drug use that's that's addressed. It's also the underlying issues that are addressed as well. And kids can learn these skills, which can benefit them way down the road. Absolutely, absolutely, and and be a big benefit. You know, and a lot of these skills, you know, unfortunately, I wish they would teach a lot of these skills in school, you know, emotional intelligence skills, emotion regulation skills, all of that. I wish they would bring that to our education system as well, because I think those, you know, really help us thrive as well, because then we can we can really choose our behaviors that benefit us instead of the emotions driving the bus, you know, so to speak. Oh, that's a great point. I, I, I share your concern and, and, and I also wish that we could put <clears throat> more focus in the schools on, on these emotional issues and teaching these coping skills, as well as we do the academic components of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. So Richard, I, w- I wanna thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. What words of hope do you have out there for maybe parents or maybe an adolescent that's listening to the podcast? I think I would say that recovery and healing is possible. You know, families and kids can get better. There is treatment out there that can help them. Once they open up that door and begin to move towards wanting to uh, get help, once they move towards wanting to feel better and be more uh, healthy, then there is an awful lot of resources that are out there for not only the kids, but the families as well. There is hope out there. There is hope out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if somebody wants to uh, find out more about you or find out about the book, where can they go? I would recommend they go to the book's website. Um, On the book's website, you can read endorsements, you can read book reviews, you can read articles that have been printed about the book. Uh, You can listen to different types of uh, blogs. There's blogs on there as well. Uh, And I would recommend you start there. There's a sample chapter on there. Uh, There's a way in which they can contact me through email and uh, they can order the book through the website as well. It's available on Amazon and there's a link to to be able to do that. Give us the web address. The web address is www.helptheaddictedchild.com. Awesome. And I will put all those links in the show notes as well. So uh, thank you. Yeah. If anybody's listening, they want more information, they can just go to theaddictedmind.com and uh, find out there as well. So Richard, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, I hope you have a great holiday season. You too. Bye-bye, Dwayne. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. You can find all the show notes at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 116. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful day. And uh, I will talk to you on the next episode.
It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.